Good morning, Sisters of the Holy Family. May I help you, please? Hi, my name is Leslie, and I have a really random question, and I'm hoping you can help. I'm going to put you on hold. Sure. I'm going to connect you to someone you can speak with, okay? Thank you so uh, much. Just a minute, please. Mm -hmm. This is Leslie Thompson. Who am I uh, speaking with? Sister Doris Goodall. Hi, Sister Doris. So um, I have a really random question for you. I'm doing a podcast based in Nashville, and uh, it's about church history, and specifically church history in the South. And we're uh, each episode we feature a tradition, and we like to have a hymn uh, that goes along with that tradition. And one of our episodes is about um, Henriette, and her um, forming of Sisters of the Holy Family. And we wanted to find a good hymn that would represent uh, your tradition. And I thought the best thing to do would maybe just be to call you and ask. There is a song, a hymn, Aria Delil, that was done by a young woman. Oh. It's called Aria Delil's song. It's very good. I could probably the music to you that would be okay yeah i would love that okay then all right well thank you so much sister doris i appreciate your time and i appreciate what you're doing too thank you yeah. you have a good day you too bye-bye bye-bye Welcome to this episode of Church Historia called Sisters of the Holy Family. I'm Leslie, and what you just heard is a conversation I had with Sister Doris Godot. She's an 89-year-old nun in the Order of the Sisters of the Holy Family in New Orleans, and she's the Order's expert on the subject of today's conversation, the Venerable Henriette Delisle. And Steph has an awesome story about coming to know Henriette and her work. Right, Steph? Yeah, going to start with a bit of a, a story about my own my own past. Good. So one of the things that I hope is a joy for my husband about being married to a church historian mm -hmm. is that when you travel, you get to go visit church historical sites. <laughs> no matter what. No Even matter what, whether or not you are planning to or not, there will be at least one church Aww. that gets visited in each location. Mm. So my story with Henriette begins several years ago when we took a long weekend to St. Louis and we visited the Basilica at St. Louis and which is a beautiful Catholic church there and they had an exhibit on this woman named Henriette and her journey to sainthood and I thought it was interesting and that was great and that was that was where I thought the story mm -hmm. and my interactions with Henriette ended and then a few years later we were in New Orleans for vacation and once again, we're going to visit church <laughs> historical sites. And so we went to visit the old Ursuline convent, who also had an exhibit on this woman named Henriette Delisle. Mm. And I was thinking, her name and her story sound really familiar. I wonder if this is the same woman. Mm. And it turned out that it was. And having run into her twice now um, in different cities in the United States, I just I was like, OK, this woman's really interesting. I, I want to know more. And so 
looked into a little bit of her story. And as part of this podcast, I really got to to dig in deeper. And Henriette has a really interesting story that for me offered a cross section of things that I had never really gotten to study before. Not only is she a woman, but she's also a woman of color and she's a Catholic in the South. And that that intersection mm. was something that I hadn't gotten to dive into very deeply until I got to sit with her story. So we're going to look at her and her legacy and her life as a window into exploring and understanding the Black Catholic Church in the South, because I think mm. it's a group that maybe we don't often associate with the South and that being Catholics in general, but then particularly the Black Catholic community. So we're going to center there today. Before we do that, I want to play you a few seconds of the recording that Sister Doris sent to me that we just heard on the phone call. And I, I've actually learned in the course of researching for this episode that the word hymn isn't really widely used in the Catholic Church. Hymnody is not necessarily a thing like it is for us Protestants. Well, I finally had a um, Catholic musical scholar tell me that the Protestant hymn tradition is actually very different from the songs that are sung in a Catholic service or mass. Did you know that, Steph? I learned that when you shared that with me. Amazing. So while Sister Doris didn't give this Protestant a hymn to hang my hat on, as it were, uh, she did send me this song about Henriette herself. So before we jump into the conversation, here are a few seconds of that song. And the sisters of the holy family continue the Okay, so tell us about our friend Henriette. Henriette Delisle was a free woman of color living in New Orleans. Her great-great-grandmother was an enslaved woman from West Africa. And her mother was free, and she was was termed the natural daughter um, of the former attorney general of the city of New Orleans. And so it was fairly common in that time in New Orleans for men of prestige and power, particularly white men of prestige and power to have sort of mistresses or a kind of live in, live in wives, I guess. The, the term for it is plaquage, which is a, when a wealthy white European man entered into a relationship with a free woman of color to circumvent laws against interracial marriage. So they were these longstanding relationships that weren't quite official because of the prohibitions oh, against interracial marriage. So children of those unions were called natural children and didn't come with all of the sort of laws and oh. prestige of legitimacy because it was still kind of an extramarital are these consensual relationships? I or is there gray area? I, I think it's a very much a gray area thing. There is very much a power structure at play. The free women of color were free, but they were also women and women of color. Within that dynamic and inherent power dynamic, there were not as many ways for these women of color to survive and have a viable economic 
existence. They, they had fewer opportunities for economic self-sufficiency and, and things yeah. like that and abilities to own property and a lot of those other things. So I, I think it probably varied mm-hmm. between amongst the relationships about how truly personal they were, how yeah. calculated they mm-hmm. were, or maybe not calculated, but how transactional they were, and then how much they were related on a toxic gotcha. power structure. So the answer is yeah, some combination of the above. Mm-hmm. And so Henriette being a child of this union and then also being a free woman of color, that was sort of the path that seemed most likely for her. And a lot of the sources at the time tell us that she was beautiful and that that was, that was the direction that it seemed her life was going to take. But she had a very strong faith and a very strong commitment to God and did not want that that life and wanted to live a life of dedicated service to God. And what's interesting is there were several orders of nuns in New Orleans during that time. And she was not able to join any of those orders because of her birth and her upbringing and her status as a woman of color. So typically to join one of these convents, you would need to come with a recommendation from your parish pastor, and then also come with a sort of dowry or contribution to the, Hmm. to the order. Then also you had to provide evidence of suitable pedigree that you were sort of this idea of inherited goodness in a way that that is incredibly problematic. She had enough wealth through the position of particularly her father to have provided this dowry, but she had a quote-unquote problematic pedigree being a natural daughter and then also being a woman of color that that was that was understood to be problematic that didn't stop her though from wanting to live this life of devotion and so in 1836 she draws up some rules and regulations for devout christian women for a way to live a devoted life um, and a dedicated life as lay mm. women. Sure. And so the original name for this group is the Sisters of the Congregation of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Oh, me. Which is, which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> but ultimately, they come to be known as the Society of the Holy Family. And they come together for the purpose of nursing the sick, caring for the poor, and instructing the community who may not have access to education. And so Henriette enlists the support of two other free women of color, Juliette Gowden and Josephine Charles. And together they start this small but mighty movement in their section of New Orleans for these purposes of nursing the sick, caring for the poor, and educating. Henriette starts serving as sponsors and witnesses for the slave population of New Orleans for sacraments. So for the times where you need somebody in good standing with the church to affirm that you are also in good standing and to affirm that the sacrament you're asking for say marriage, that this is a a good and honorable thing that should be supported. So she serves as witness for that, does a tremendous amount of, of teaching, and they start a home for elderly women who need care. And so this becomes America's first Catholic home for the elderly, according to the National Register. Hmm. 
And in 1842, the Sisters of the Holy Family becomes the first, that's when it becomes officially a religious order sanctioned by the Catholic Church as a whole. And it's the first black religious order in the Lower South. Hmm. And so it's formally recognized by the church for the work that they're doing. They do a tremendous effort for the community during yellow fever epidemics in New Orleans between 1853 and 1897. And they have schools to teach slave and poor populations. And they just truly have this amazing ministry to their community. And in her obituary, Henriette is described as servant of slaves. And that becomes her epitaph that follows her and just highlighting her service and her dedication to people who were considered the least of these, to the slaves, to the poor, to women, to the sick, to the elderly, and this life of a full devotion and service to God, specifically among these people. So in 1988, she was declared a servant of God and the Catholic Church approved her candidacy for sainthood. And she's the first United States native-born African-American to be a candidate for sainthood. Mm -hmm. And she is currently in the status of venerable. So that's sort of below full saint status. But the church formally acknowledges her devotion and her piety and her acts as the hands and feet of Christ in this world. So it's a pretty, pretty Im- impressive thing yeah. that she managed to accomplish largely without official support of the church, without lots of donors. This was a very grassroots figure out how to make wow. it work community. Henriette herself had poor health and so had a lot of health hmm. struggles to work through on top of wow the struggles of poverty and racism and she saw the truth amongst the clutter that church can can gather and lived that truth and lived the the true calling of the gospel. I don't know that she intended to, say, reform the Catholic Church from the inside out, but I think she did. I think her her witness called the church back to what it could be and what it should be. And I think when we when we look at her example, especially as people removed from that, I think we we should look and honor her witness of of calling the church then and us now back to the truth of the gospel. We'll get back to the beautiful international room at the Scarrett Bennett Center in a minute. But I wanted to first thank you for listening to Church Historia. We're a new show, and as such, we need help making sure other folks know we exist and are worth listening to. So by subscribing and leaving reviews, you can make sure others know that this show is worth taking up space in their podcast listening schedule. We appreciate it so very much. Thank you. And so as I studied her story, it made me curious about Catholicism in the South and then specifically Black Catholics and what that experience was like. I grew up in New England in an area full of Catholics, especially Irish Catholics and Italian Catholics. And so I was familiar with those flavors of Catholicism, but Henrietta sort of really prompted me to look at a broader Catholic tradition here in the United States. So one of the things I think that's of note is Catholics in the South have always been here, not necessarily in large quantities, especially around the time of the American Revolution. The United States was 
and especially the South was largely Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian. But you have Jesuit missionaries arriving for mission efforts to the indigenous people of the Americas from very first times that European settlers and colonizers set foot on, on the continent. In 1632, Cecil Cavert, who's Lord Baltimore, gets the charter for Maryland and establishes Maryland as a colony and as a Catholic colony. Hmm. And Maryland has a very distinctive Catholic start. It has a bit of a hiccup in the early 1640s where Protestants take over the government and expel all the Jesuits. But then by 1646, the Jesuits are back. And then 1649, we see the act of toleration in Maryland for establishing at least some level of religious freedom to allow Catholics to have a space in, mm. in the United States because it's later in the colonies that we get these ideas of religious freedom. Massachusetts is incredibly Puritan and feels very strongly that way. It's not until we get into sort of the founding of Rhode Island and Pennsylvania that ideas about religious tolerance and freedom of religious expression start to take on the idea of the ability for everybody to, to express mm. their religious, religion freely. You look at something like Massachusetts, the idea is so that the Puritans can freely uh, express their their religion, not that all can can do that. So from the early colonial days, there is a, a presence of Catholics in the United States and originally largely centered out of Maryland. Now we may think of Catholic populations being centered more in northeastern cities, perhaps, but it starts in the South. And there's a really interesting quote from the book Tradition and the Traditions of African-American Catholics by M. Sean Copeland, who points out that when we talk about Black Catholics and their presence within the Christian tradition as a whole and the Catholic tradition in particular, he says, almost from the beginning, indeed even now, the faith praxis of African-American Catholics has been met with arrogance and suspicion. These reactions stem chiefly from the notion that African-American Christian is restricted to, if not identical with, a certain form of Protestantism. So again, this gets back to the idea that the South has historically been largely Protestant and specifically Baptist and Methodist followed by Presbyterian, but that doesn't mean it was exclusively Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian. And mm -hmm. so from the beginning, there have been Black Catholics as early as 1536. And so Catholics are here from the, the beginning of the history of the United States and Black Catholics are here from the beginning of the United States. There's evidence of refugees fleeing the revolution in Santo Domingo, which will become Haiti and the Dominican Republic, who settled in Maryland in 1793. And that community becomes the first black Catholic parish in the United States. One of the other statistics that I thought was fascinating is 1997, there were more black Catholics than most Protestant denominations. So more than the Disciples of Christ, AME and AME Zion. They wow. make it up 3% of the total Catholic population and 9% of the black population. Huh. And part of this is because a lot of those other denominations just have smaller numbers sort of mm -hmm. nationally. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was interesting that it's a community that we don't often talk about. And I think Copeland is right. We can often associate the black church with a specific type of Protestantism, one that is more evangelical, but historically... That hasn't always been the case. And today it's not, it's not always the case. And right. I think it's important for us to, to name this and identify this and honor the black Catholics among us mm -hmm. who may not always get to see themselves reflected in the history and narratives around yeah. 
the South and Southern churches. What did that dynamic look like for Black Catholics in the South? So you talked about Henriette would, what was the phrase that she, she would basically represent them when it came to things like yeah, as a as a witness for for the sacraments, the Catholic Church, much like other Christian denominations, has a varied and a mixed history when it comes to supporting racial equality. And so we see both evidences of the Catholic Church supporting anti-slavery efforts and efforts for racial justice and racial equality. And also we see the opposite of that. We see times where the Catholic church affirmed slavery, affirmed segregation, affirmed divisions within the congregation. So there's, there's a few things within that that I, I think might be worth us touching on, on that duality. So one of the things that I found was a lot of the abolitionists in the North in the preceding years of the Civil War were Protestant and as part of their Protestantism were also deeply anti-Catholic, just generically. Mm. And so for Catholics in the South, it was really off-putting to have somebody saying how awful and misguided your faith is. And then it's hard to listen to them on anything else. And so there was a leaning of white Catholics in the South sort of against abolitionism and against their program of freeing the slaves. And I don't know that we can distangle that from the abolitionist anti-Catholic rhetoric. And I think it's one of those moments in history where we can wonder, could could that have been different if maybe those things hadn't end up tied together? Mm-hmm. There's also examples where slaves had to get their master's permission before they could go, before they could receive communion or they would be served communion last. Mm -hmm. And I think those are important things for us to to note and to prompt us to ask, where are the subtle evidences of racism in, in our own life and in our own world that these weren't big demonstrative moments of, no, you can't come to church. You just can't come to your church of your own accord. Or yes, you can have communion, but only after everybody else has had communion. What does that mean to any group of people to situate them that way. I think that speaks to something symbolically that is a theology that we need to acknowledge and need to question if that's the theology that we should have. So Mm -hmm. who, who can come to the communion table? How do we come to the communion table? And how do we do that in an equitable way that reflects God's love for all of God's people? In opposition to that, there's a story that I read in Black and Catholic in the Jim Crow South that talks about segregation in churches in Mississippi and particularly the role of the Catholic church hierarchy in challenging that. So in Mississippi in the 1960s, churches were segregated and they were segregated by law. What is different about Catholic church polity than other denominations like, for example, Baptists, is that the Catholic church has a hierarchy that extends outside of the local community, outside of the nation, and is a global standard. And so you have this edict from Rome that no Catholic in good standing can be prevented from attending any Catholic church. Hmm. And it's enforced to various degrees, but then that has to be the truth 
for all Catholic churches, regardless of where they are. So even though in the 1950s and 60s, in this example in particular, it's in Natchez, Mississippi, although there are secular laws in place around segregation, the Catholic church has to acknowledge a different hierarchy and in some ways forced a tolerance and an integration that was countercultural because because of that polity and because of that structure. And so, and you see the church taking that stance formally. So this is a, an excerpt from the book by Danny Duncan Collum. And he says, in 1958, Bishop Richard Grow heard reports of threats directed against black Catholics attending St. Anne's in Fayette near Natchez. The bishop made a surprise visit to announce that keeping black people out of Catholic churches in his diocese was a mortal sin and one that could only be absolved by the bishop himself. Translated, this meant your local priest could absolve you from mass murder, but if you kept black people out of church, you had to answer to the bishop. And until you did, you were doomed to hell. This was a serious exercise of power at a time when the spiritual authority of the hierarchy was unquestioned by most believing Catholics, and it kept the white Catholic churches in Mississippi open to black worshipers. Wow. So I think that's a a tremendous moment of, of witness to, again, racial equality and racial justice that stands in some ways in contradiction to the white Catholic stance of being Mm pro-slavery and the hesitation around embracing the abolitionist movement. I wanted to close with some thoughts from another book called Black and Catholic, The Challenge and Gift of Black Folk, which is a anthology of African-American experience and thought on Catholic theology. Hmm. And I think that there's a really astute and poignant message from Crypton Davis, who is talking about church history and the study of church history and why it's important to study it and also why it's important to both talk about the times when the church has championed justice and equality and been a a strong witness for those things, but also why it's important to talk about the times where the church has fallen short. And we've been talking about the Catholic Church today, but these things that we're talking about are not limited to the Catholic Church. This dual stance of being both racist and anti-racist, of supporting racist policy and striving for racial justice and equality coexist, and they coexist within Christian denominations. So going to uh, read Davis's quote here. Before the Civil War in the South, black Catholics, slave or free, were to be found in all parishes from New Orleans to Baltimore, St. Augustine to St. Louis. What kind of view of the American church do we give our students if they do not know that in St. Martinsville, Louisiana, it was taken for granted that a slave had to have his owner's permission to receive communion? What kind of American sacramental theology did we have in this country when it was the regular practice in much of the southern United States for white Catholics to receive communion first and blacks to receive last? How many who teach pastoral theology know that this venerable custom was maintained until the very recent past? Historically, we like to speak of the American perspective on church and freedom with John Courtney Murray and his contribution to political theology. Practically, we should examine that perspective from the viewpoint of parishes in Chicago, We're in transition from white to black with bitterness and even violence in some neighborhoods. In our history of the American church, was it the real ecclesiology and a history from below? In fact, in discussing such things as the immigrant church and national parishes, whose steeples crowd the skyline of our northern cities, can we ignore, as most surveys do, the question of 
all black parishes in the post-Civil War American church. If we avail ourselves of oral history, and oral history is a favorite method of practitioners of history from below, we will find about pastors standing on church steps barring entrance to baptized blacks. This is also a vision of Catholic America that belongs to the very recent past and that affects us still. Again, it is important for us to, when we look at the past, to look at all of it. I think we have tendencies at different times to either look at all of the joys or all of the pains, but there are both. And the presence of the pains and the trauma and the things that we regret and mourn doesn't mean that there's not still value in these traditions. Mm -hmm. John O'Donohue, who's an Irish poet and theologian, uses the term about excavating traditions to bring new light and new ideas and new growth to where we are today, that tradition doesn't have to be perfect for it to be valuable. And so today I, I wanted to wanted to make sure that we talked about this and, and talked about the complicated and difficult legacy that Christianity in the South has, especially around race, mm. but also that that not discourage us from the study of it or the examination of it, because again, to find out how we got here, we must look at it all. And again, that includes looking at the struggles and the traumas and the the things that we should mourn and repent, but it also invites us to look at the things that are good and the things that should be celebrated and the things that we should emulate. Henriette's servant heart for her community, her dedication and perseverance, the witness of churches in Mississippi in a segregated era that resisted the cultural impulse and instead chose integration. The congregation that we were talking about goes on in the in the civil rights era to have a very prominent place in in civil rights work and in, in racial justice and equality work in that community. And so it's important for us to discuss and witness and examine both sides. Yeah, I think that's one of the main flags that this podcast hangs is that we may not agree with what happened in the past personally, but we cannot ignore it just because it's painful. And church history is very painful. Recent church history is very painful. And I think most of the millennial generation will, those who have left the church, who have struggled with the church, will bring painful stories that we can't, we can't figure out. And many of us had made some pretty long-term decisions based upon our recent church history. And if we ignore it or if we don't face it, then we are, we're not reading the whole story. And we don't learn from the beautiful things. I mean, tales of reconciliation, uh, redemption. Church Historia is Stephanie Fulbright, our historian and tea mistress, and me, Leslie Eiler-Thompson, producer, editor, and in-house Iditarod expert. One day, we'll share what that means. Our music in today's episode was played by Andrea Yoey and Megan Santi. You can find more about Church Historia, including a bibliography for today's sources, at churchhistoria.com. <laughs>